Welcome to Soundstage Insider, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the film and television industry. We're bringing you the visionary directors and producers, the talented cinematographers, editors, sound designers, and more who really make the magic happen. We delve deep into their stories, their struggles, and their triumphs. So let's go beyond the red carpet and discover a fascinating world of behind-the-scenes talent. Hello, welcome to the Soundstage Insider podcast. Now, I've had some feedback that suggests I should shorten these intros, so I am going to do that. I am nothing if not responsive to feedback. Um, So we're going to get straight into it today. going to give you a short bio of our guest and then get straight into the interview. Jim Froner is an acclaimed film and television cinematographer, renowned for his exceptional visual storytelling skills. Throughout his career, Froner has collaborated with numerous talented directors, producers and fellow cinematographers, creating a diverse portfolio of work that showcases his versatility and artistic vision. From television series such as Big Little Lies, Transparent, I Love Dick, and Apple TV Plus's Shrinking, to independent films Afternoon Delight, Breakpoint, and many more, his cinematography has consistently elevated storytelling, evoking emotion and immersing audiences in captivating visual landscapes. I started the interview by asking Jim if he remembers what his first impression was of cinematography and cinematographers. That's a very interesting first question. I mean, I always loved movies and stories and was always, as a kid, taken away to those magical places very easily and very quickly and and got, you know, I was known as the sensitive one in my family. I'm one of seven kids. And we would go to the movies and my, you know, three older brothers would look over at certain points and, and see if I had my hands up on either side of my head. That meant I was tearing up and didn't want anyone to see that I was doing things. Um, and then they would, you know, tease me relentlessly about that. But I can say that I have so many memories of that kind of experience of just being transported from movies and and even watching, you know, stuff at home, whether it was a show or or a, a movie. And I can also share that as a younger adult or even a teenager, when I, you know, first picked up my mom's little Kodak Instamatic camera that, you know, just had a little click button and a flash that. I would sometimes take that around the neighborhood and and just notice it's funny because I can look back at photos from that period and see how I loved the way that, you know, light coming through a window looked or the way that a building on one side of the street that had windows would reflect the sunlight and all these kind of specular patterns on yeah. the building across the street from it. And I would take a picture of that. So it was fun to see like decades later because my path to becoming a cinematographer was not a straight one. I mean, I went to film school and like everybody there, I was going to be a director and, you know, a writer. And I actually came out of film school writing screenplays. And I happened to have a friend of mine who was starting to get into film production on the lighting side. And we started writing together and he said, you know, why don't I try and get you on the lighting crew? So that way we have the same work schedule and then we can, you know, have the same writing schedule. So I did that for a handful of years out of film school. And I found that I very quickly took to lighting and loved it and rose very quickly through the ranks to become a gaffer. And it was only after a few years of that, that I started looking over 
to the camera department and thinking like that, I know that's a fun job being a DP. It's super creative. And, you know, I could tell stories for a while, but the, the short version is like, I was in the commercial world as a gaffer, always aching to do narrative. And I worked with this filmmaker named Mike Mills, who had done some commercials and then was doing short films, doing features. And I was Mike's, I was on Mike's crew for six or seven years as a gaffer. And then along came this documentary project. And he said, Jim, will you come to Japan and film this with me? And that was my first official entry into becoming a DP. And I had such an incredible experience doing that film with Mike. And then other directors heard that I was starting to shoot. And again, I was very fortunate in that my DP career took off very quickly. And then it was just a matter of now, how do I get into the storytelling? Because that's my truest love is to be a part, a key, you know, creative part of the team that brings the story to life. Right. So, you know, eventually I got, you know, lucky and got into narrative. And again, it's just been a joyful journey filled with, you know, lots of great stories and lots of great life experiences and lots of nice credits. Yeah, absolutely. That's really interesting because as you were describing your early years and you were talking about how you'd see light through a window and things mm -hmm. like that, I was thinking your motivation was more from an artistic perspective, a visual artistic perspective, but right. you're saying it's more of a storytelling or well, is it a combination I, of the two or? I definitely, yes, it's, it's definitely a combination. I mean, again, to, you know, to this day, I'm still kind of where I lean in, in terms of the way that I shoot things. And obviously I can do a few different styles, but the main thing that I'm known for is this very naturalistic kind of grounded where it feels like real life or like the light is coming through a window, the way light feels in, you know, your apartment or your house, even yeah. if we're on soundstage. So it's definitely the, the combination of that. And then, you know, wanting to be, like I said, just there in the room working with actors and helping be the conduit or the emotion for the journey the, you know, that the audience is going to take. You talk about your your visual style. Is that something that has occurred naturally over time? Is it something that is a product of particular influences? How, how would you say you've developed that? I think that I was always... So there was a, a, a DP named Harris Savitas who shot most of Gus Van Zandt's early stuff. Wow. And like one movie that, you know, most people know is Goodwill Hunting. Yeah. That Harris shot and that Gus Van Zandt directed. And the way that there was an emotional quality, there was a very human quality. Not everything was perfect and slick. There was this lived in feeling just, I'll use the word and it'll probably come up a lot as we talk, but like a very kind of human or humanistic, you know, a lot of tenderness for the human, you know, character in yeah. his cinematography. He died pretty young. He died shortly after that movie, in fact. But um, that was, you know, I think as I was, you know, a younger moviegoer and as I started becoming a DP, I, I realized that there was something in me. I wished, you know, one, it'd be great if someday I can, you know, have work that is as fine and full of feeling as Harris Savitis' work. But also just, it just suited my personality, just how I view the world, I think, and how I, and the kind of lighting and you know, that I'm not, I'm not the DP who is shooting this, the kind of slick thriller, you know, I'm, I, I want to work on a human scale. That's where I think my skills and gifts work best on the human scale. 
Yeah, and you've discovered that through the the process of doing it, right? Yes. Imp- yeah. 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 So as we work towards the kind of work that you do now and where you are in your career right now, I'd like to hear a little more about your early projects, your first few projects that you were doing as a DP. Mm-hmm. Um, what were they like? Was it a, <laughs> a nerve wracking experience? We, did you feel prepared? What What was the, What was that like? Right. Well, I have a you know a good story about my the very first narrative project. I mean, because the thing with Mike was that I mentioned with Mike Mills was a documentary. And then the DP work that I got from that was still in the commercial realm while I was, Mm -hmm. you know, I had an agent and I said, you know, I really want to do a feature. I really want to do a feature. This is before streaming kind of exploded. And, you know, I kept hearing, well, you know, you've never shot a feature. So this, this, or that director or producer is reluctant to, you know, hire you because you haven't done one. And I was very fortunate that there's a visionary at the time, a you know, writer, TV writer and, and director named Joey Soloway, who had a feature and something already existed even in my commercial work in, in terms of I was doing a lot of kind of like more grounded lifestyle vignette kind of real people stuff. Mm-hmm. Joey saw something in my work and I got an interview with Joey and was at long last hired to, you know, do this feature called Afternoon Delight starring Catherine Hahn and Juno Temple. And the producers after, you know, Joey had met with me and a few other DPs and Joey talked about how much they wanted to work with me. The producers were very nervous and said, but you haven't directed a feature before Joey and Jim hasn't directed, I mean, you know, DP'd a a film before. We're nervous, we're nervous, we're nervous. And so the producers persuaded Joey to not hire me, even though Joey and I had this instant connection. And that was the summer of 2012, right? At the beginning of the summer, Joey and I met and they were going to film in August. Three or four days before principal photography on that independent feature started, Joey called me and said that the DP that they hired dropped out and was <laughs> I still available. And it was such a funny experience, Jamie, because when we met, it really was this creative, like creative sparks were flying and there was this, you know, kind of, we were speaking the same language from this very first lunch meeting. And even when Joey had called me to say it wasn't going to happen earlier that summer, there was some feeling like we're not done. We're not done with this potential, you know, creative relationship yet. And so, and Joey calls. And so three days later, there was DPing my very first feature, Wow, (laughs) which went on to Sundance and Joey won the best directing award that year. And then the following year, Joey, uh, had been writing, uh, project based on what was going on in their family and it became the tv show transparent i don't know oh, yes yes of course. so that 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 relationship that almost didn't happen that then happened with joey's movie has been this incredible fruitful really powerful collaboration that has shaped me not only in my dp career but as a human being because we went on to do you know five seasons of transparent and then this show called i love dick so this, yeah. you know, this one thing, this tenuous little moment of, oh, this is going to be the first feature and then it goes away and then it comes back, ended up, you know, blossoming into this really. And, and again, it's like to, you know, transparent was at the very beginning of streaming. It was at the very beginning of yeah. broader awareness culturally of, oh, there's this whole community of people that have always existed and, you know, but bringing their stories to the forefront. And so it was just sort of amazing that that was my I was basically a new DP in terms of narrative when Transparent began. Yeah. So really, like, thanks to that guy for pulling out. 
<laughs> yes, <really>? exactly. <laughs> yeah. Do you know who it is? Do you owe him a drink or something? <laughs> I do know who it is. I do know who it is. And I, I, I've, over the years, I've thought about, you know, saying something. But, you know, again, every, you know, people make their choices. Yeah, absolutely. So do you think only having three days was probably a good thing? So you didn't necessarily start panicking or overthinking it? Or <laughs> would you prefer more time? Um, I mean, when I think back on that, it was just this thrill ride. It's like, oh yeah, yeah. you're ready to go? Here, here we go, man. Like the ride is shooting out of the gate, you know, if it's a like e-ticket ride, roller coaster, whatever, like there's no time. And so it was just like going right away on instinct and, you know, feeling the kind of electric charge of collaborating and getting in there with the actors. And so, I mean, it is funny because I didn't know anything. So I, yeah. I mean, like I had never experienced what was supposed to happen. Yeah. Prepping for a feature. And, you know, like the first, luckily that the movie took place mostly in this, the house of the main character. And, you know, so of our 23 days of filming, we were probably there, you know, 14 days. So we kind of got to land there first and sort of figure our way towards the world of the story and, and how to tell it. Right. But it was an incredible summer. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. I mean, sometimes just being thrown in the deep end is kind of the best way to get started with something yes. right don't think about it too much yeah um so let's let's move on more to the present day now um when all the things that you've learned over the years all the projects that you've worked on when you're in talks to work on a new project what are the kind of things that you're looking for out of the project or out of the collaborators that you work with what what questions do you have going in to that process i typically meet you know the creative like when we're talking about tv mm. i guess it's also true for some of that in the feature world but it's i've done the majority majority of the my career has been in tv thus far um mm. and i will ask the creator showrunner this is before maybe i'm even meeting the who's going to be directing i'll just one of the questions i end up asking is why do you want to tell this story and mm. i'm there again my way in so often is on a emotional level like if i understand what the emotional journey of the character or characters is and or and what the kind of feeling space that the filmmaker wants the, the show creator or showrunner wants then the things start to appear to me you know in terms of the visuals mm. style the feeling the lensing um so having that kind of conversation you know as opposed to it being about that it's not it's rarely first about anything technical or, you know, like how many shoot days are we going to have or who the cast is, whatever. It's like, I want to kind of understand that what, what is driving them to tell the story. And, you know, when I'm then working with the directors who are going to do the pilot or, or what have you, I will, we end up talking so much about the stuff around the story again, kind of the ways that we relate to the characters or personal life experiences. And then from that starts to build this, one, it builds a connection with the other person, but also mm. then that kind of starts to translate as we talk about, in the, like in the case of shrinking, for example, you know, this is a story that has moments of high comedy or physical comedy and silliness, but also a lot of pathos and pain and human suffering, right? The death of a loved one, the death of a mother, the death of a spouse. And so in that case, James Ponsel, who was one of the producers and directed the pilot as well as a few other episodes, and I would just talk about wanting to honor that, to let the camera kind of be there as a witness, we'll say, to what has happened to this family, to what has happened to Jason Siegel's character. And 
essentially their conversations that I guess to answer your question is they start again from that kind of emotional place and then build towards a language of how we're going to tell that story. It's fascinating to me hearing about the the level of collaboration between the the producers, the showrunners, the director, the DOPs. <clears throat> it strikes me that you as the cinematographer have such an influence over the finished product, you know. Can you talk about how much your creativity in, within that process influences and, you know, you sort of bounce off ideas with all the other people, the, the collaborators at that level? From an outside perspective, it's sort of a mystery <laughs> how these things come to be, you know. Right. Well, the first thing that came to mind as you were asking the question is to, you know, go back to the days of Transparent. And when both on the indie feature I mentioned, Afternoon Delight with Joey, and then the early days of Transparent, we we actually were influenced a lot by Andrea Arnold. I don't know if you know mm -hmm. her work. But the movie Fish Tank really inspired us. And there's something in that that, again, I, I connected to both creatively and also as a human being in terms of this style that had pretty much all handheld camera and that you felt like you were just there in the room. So as Joey and I were building our own language for uh, Transparent, we were saying like, we started this idea, I started trying to like find inspiration based on Andrea Arnold's style of filmmaking. You know, how do we make it into our, how do we find our own version of that? And one thing that I discovered and had no idea prior is that I was really great at handheld camera work. And so oh. in terms of like, you're asking like, what, how much is my creativity influence or what I bring influence the, the end result in that case, Joey wanted handheld and then it turned out that uh, again it's like if you were I'm not an athletic person I can't play sports I would be t I'm totally uncoordinated in real life but when I have a camera on my shoulder <laughs> I can kind of float around and like you know bob and weave and I'm you know moving around so so what is great at handheld cap what does that mean exactly uh well I guess what I'm describing is you can put me in a room with actors and I don't have to know what's going to happen. And I somehow f I manage to land the camera at the right time or like find a gesture that a, an actor is making maybe after they think the camera's off them. But like my instincts to follow, you know, the feeling yeah. and follow the scene work. Which comes back to that emotional thing, probably that emotional. I, yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. You know, there are so many times I'm watching a show or I'm watching a movie and I think, this looks so great. I don't know how this DP does this. I could never do that. And it used to kind of bug me like, oh, does that mean, you know, I'm not good enough or I don't know, but I've come to grow, you know, into myself and realize like where my strengths are. And it's in this yeah. world, you know, following my intuition, working in a very, like I've said already, that naturalistic way. But so this allowed, what this meant for transparent particularly is that we weren't setting marks for the actors. Like that's a big part of, you know, how you execute, typically how you execute a scene, right? It's like the actor's going to stand in the doorway, then they're going to move to this position, then they're going to sit down here and they're going to stand up here. With our working style that we started playing around with and, and loving is like the actors could just be in the space. They didn't have to do the same thing each time. They can just exist in this room that we're in together. And I would just, follow the feeling, follow the scene. And so that mm. became very integral to the way that transparent felt and looked, right? It's like 
we wanted, again, that feeling of this thing is unfolding in real time in front of us. It means that sometimes things were missed or the focus was a little soft or, you know, the shot wasn't perfect. But I've, again, and I, I've now worked with a lot of the same camera crew and have kind of instilled in them the same idea. So I don't always have to be the one holding the camera. Yeah. Um, where I'm not looking for perfection. I'm, I'm looking for connection. You know, like just be present, be open, open your heart. As sometimes I jokingly say to my camera operators, like, open your heart and close your mouth. Like, you know, just, just be present <laughs> yeah. with the camera and things will reveal themselves. It's, it's a really amazing process. And I guess that is also opening that opportunity for capturing that lightning in a bottle moment that you yes. can't write on a script. You can't prepare, you can't do over and over take and take out. You know? Yes, exactly. Yeah. The happy accidents. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I actually remember I was reading a, an interview that you did. I think it was for big little lies and you were talking about that process and it struck me that actors must love that (laughs) i can imagine that they really appreciate that yes and you know you helping them and everyone it's sort of a miracle to me that movies happen that everyone has to be able to do their job and film tv everything it's such a collaborative complicated process yes that you doing your job really well helps the actors do their job really well, which helps the sound and the, you know, later on the editors and the, you know, yeah. So yeah, I can imagine how that process is great. Yes. No, you're, you're right. It's, it's a, it's a very elaborate dance. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned your team is your responsibility finding your team then for each project that comes up. And then what is your process for finding those people? Um, what are the criteria that you look for? Yeah. Um, so I will hire the camera operators and I will be in conversation with who's going to be the primary focus pullers on those two. You, it's typically two cameras, right? In, in TV, especially, but as far as the rest of the camera crew, they will then be hired by, you know, those leading people. Like typically the first AC will hire the second AC and, and other folks. And, right. um, and then there's also the position of a DIT the digital image technician who helps manage and, you know, on set. I don't know how deep you want to go into like what that person does, but you know, yeah. they're there with a the monitor where sometimes one camera doesn't quite match another camera. Or since we use vintage lenses so often now the, these days, sometimes the, the lenses are slightly different. So that person is sort of doing the simplistic way of thinking of it is like, it's like Photoshop on the fly. Or if, if I want, if I know that, you know, I'm going to eventually want the, this mood to be darker than it looks in the room, whether it's because of bright walls or whatever, like the DIT will help shape the image with me live right there. And then that's, oh. the, that's the look that gets sent to the dailies that then gets sent to editorial. And is that baked in to, for the editor later or is well, that like a lot? The short answer is it's not baked in. So mm. there could be a process or, you know, depending on who your producers or showrunners are, they may say some, some showrunners are like, we completely leave the visuals in your hands and the look that you want is the look that stays throughout the whole thing. And then some will get to the post-production process and say like, oh, we want the colors much richer. Like we imagine this scene or this episode or this character's world to be, you know, bolder colors than what, you know, was given to them through the look that I said. And so then, you know, there's ways to undo or redo or, you know, right variations on the, on the theme that can yeah. happen. But, and, and you, you asked, you know, what do I look for? 
one thing that I'll say has, has started, I felt it's starting to shift in our business in the last few years, maybe particularly since the pandemic, there's less and less tolerance for assholes or, you know, for, for difficult pain in the ass people. Yeah. Um, yeah. and another way to say it is like, there are so many people who can do a, a good job that I'm looking for somebody who is kind, who has good positive energy because we're going to be working on set with each other for 10, 12, sometimes longer hours a day. Yeah. You want to be surrounded by people who, who come with that positivity. And again, it's like, it's hard work and some days you're not going to be in a good mood or, you know, things are going to be tense sometimes, but as a foundation, it's like, we're all, let's all be together and watch out for each other because of this elaborate mm. dance, because we are going to be busting our asses and keeping each other safe, keeping each other, you know, even just being emotionally supportive of each other. So I look for people who are, you know, kind human beings and quote, who do their job well. And presumably have that emotional sensibility as well, that, or sensitivity, should I say? Yes. I mean, particularly with, with operators, yes, absolutely. And then, you know, I also hire the gaffer who's the head of lighting and the key grip who assists with all the camera movement and, and also with the lighting as well. So I hire those people and then they hire their crew. And you mentioned focus pulling. Can you tell me a little bit about what that role is and the importance of that role? Yeah. So, you know, back in the day of film cameras before all the, the, the digital and wireless stuff took over, um, you know, a focus puller would be right next to the camera and the, and the focus knob was on the camera. And so whoever was operating the camera would we'd have this other person right next to them. And that person was, you know, two feet or three feet or whatever from the actors. So that means a couple of things. One, they have to be very good at their job because, you know, it's, it's a very, very challenging thing. If somebody sits back even three inches, like you got to ride the focus wheel, you know, or they stand up or sit down or they do something unexpected. You, you're this kind of, you know, silent magician, like keeping everything in focus. It's a very, very critical job. But the other mm -hmm. thing is, is who they are energetically when they're that close to the actor also matters, right? Um, hear actors saying like, they feel like that those people right there at the camera are their first audience, right? Mm. Or like, and they can feel what's happening. Like there is a, an exchange of energy between who's behind the camera and who's on camera. So it's not just the, the, the skill of riding the focus wheel, but it's also that kind of people with a certain personality, the actors can feel their support or their, you know, that they are with them, if that makes sense. Yeah. And then, you know, one thing that because of more than half of my work, a good amount of the shows are handheld shows. Again, with that spontaneous thing I was talking about earlier, the people that I hire also have this kind of extra sensory, sensory ability. Like there's this woman, Faith Brewer, and I've worked with her on and off for over 10 years. And oftentimes, I mean, she's so good at her job, she's sometimes not available for my projects, but I always call her first because she is besides being this person with a tremendously huge heart and great sense of humor is one of the most skilled ACs first, you know, focus pullers that I've ever met and just has this, it's almost like she knows where I'm going to go with the camera before I even know. Yeah. And, and it's this thing where, and they're very on the, like the unsung hero kind of thing, because no one's really thinking about that. They're watching this incredible performance by the actor or they're seeing what the camera's doing, but they're not thinking like somebody is keeping this image, 
you know, in focus for this entire, yeah. again, in, in our digital world now, you know, a, a take can go for 20 minutes, which again, right. the actors love and it brings a certain vitality to the filming, but it's, it is definitely tough on the technicians, but that person who's the focus puller is riding that thing for that entire time. And it's a, it's a pretty, it's a remarkable, the people who can do it well are, I, I think, little wizards. Yeah. Yeah. You don't hear, hear a lot about them. Maybe I'll do an episode just on, on them. Oh yeah. Interesting to hear what they have to say. Yeah. 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 Oh, but the one thing I want to say about that, their job too, is like nowadays with digital and wireless, they're now in front of a monitor, not the camera, which both means that they miss out. I think emotionally or, you know, creatively they miss out being in the room, but Mm. it also means that their job is almost harder because to feel that kind of connectivity between the operator and the focus puller, but yet they're, you know, 25 feet away. Uh, yeah. Now they're, you know, looking at their monitor and you couldn't get them a pair of like VR goggles and <laughs> stand next to them, you know, like camera. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if there's still some like, you know, older focus pullers who are like, I'm going to do it the way I know. Yeah. On the camera. <laughs> You mentioned earlier that you use a lot of vintage lenses and things like that. So that that sounds like this that's a thing that's in vogue right now, using vintage lenses. Yes. Or? I mean, so as digital came onto the scene and, you know, for a while cameras were 2K and then they were 3.5K and then 4K and now you can get an 8K camera and who knows where the Ks are going to, you know, that's <laughs> more and more sensitivity, you know, and bigger sensors to, to capture the image. One thing that a lot of DPs, I'm definitely, you know, just, it's happened across the industry where a lot of these cameras were so sharp and so clean because they were these digital machines that people started seeking out older vintage lenses to add some aberrations or some flaws or just have some character and some feeling to the image. And that brought about this whole kind of Renaissance. I mean, there there were like dusty old lenses that were in the back of a room at, you know, Panavision Hollywood, for example. And this amazing man named Guy McVicker, you know, found this box of old lenses that were from pre-World War II and like scoured the world to find like if it was missing some of the lens, you know, like if you had a 40 mil lens, but you needed a 65 millimeter, he scoured around the world to like find these old lenses and then rehoused them, rebuilt them. And, and now, mm. you know, they're available. So and again, this is just, this is one example where it became this opening up of all these new potential paintbrushes that DPs could use to tell the story, you know, that, that you weren't limited to just new lenses that fit these cameras. It's like they figured out how to rebuild old lenses to fit new cameras. And it just opened up a whole playground of, you know, what you, what you have available to, to choose from as you're finding your way towards what the look of a project wants to be yeah do, do you think something has been lost with the transition to digital or is has the lens recalibrated the whole like that hyper clarity because yeah. you know, as soon as i get a new tv and that setting that makes everything look way too sharp oh, you know i'm like i can't wait to get rid of that <laughs> you know? so uh, i don't know who to talk to I've, I've actually thought about this like there are other things in life to worry about but when i go to a friend's house and and that's how they watch tv yeah. and i <laughs> Not even my work. I don't care about that, but just like everything looks like a soap opera. 
It's yeah, I know, dreadful setting. No, it's it's yeah. it's horrifying. It's horrifying. I mean, I've seen like great yeah. movies that ended up looking like you know plastic telenovelas. I don't know, man. But um, as far as you know, I mean, there are still filmmakers who insist on film. There are projects both in the feature world and TV that shoot on film. Euphoria, for example, on HBO, that still you know, they shoot film and. I'm so glad about that, for one thing, that there are still people who advocate and push for that. There are many, many benefits to digital. Like I said, I mean, the, the way that I'm describing that we shot transparent would not necessarily be possible with film because of letting scenes unfold or just, you know, starting over and going back, you know, to the beginning of the scene, but the camera can keep rolling. And there are trade-offs. Yeah. Again, it's like, it's not easy to carry a camera for 25 minutes, but there's something that you gain from this, you know, that again, with the example of transparent, having that living, breathing thing happening. And yes, the lenses do help. It's funny though, I will, and this happens probably three times a year where I'll suddenly, maybe I'll look at an old project of mine, or I'll just be looking through images, stills from various projects that I've shot pre-digital and post. And Anytime an image comes up, and I'm not thinking about it, but an image comes up that's filmed, there's just something that grabs me, that I respond to, yeah. that lights me up or connects me in a way that I don't get from digital. I mean, I'm so used to digital now that there's ways to feel that in its own way, I suppose. I don't know, but it's funny. It's like anytime I think that, oh, we're, we're okay because we you knew that we don't shoot on film anymore, and then I'll just see even a still image. I'll be like, yeah, that. Yeah, my wife and I, we both like f still photography and she's old school, majorly old school. She uses a TLR, like twin lens, you know, look, you look down the top of it. Yeah, and yeah, she's yeah, got yeah. like 10 shots when we go out, you know, and I, I use my digital camera. I've got, you know, a thousand, two thousand if I want, you know, right. and the idea of not being able to review it immediately just terrifies me. And you've got 10 time, 10 opportunities to get it right and capture that moment. And then, you know, it right. might be gone, but that terrifies me. But then you look at the end result and there, like you say, there is just this organic, like hyper organic quality to film. It's like, reality plus i don't know what it is it adds so much drama to everything that yeah it's intoxicating really the the film yeah. side but the practicality of it yes. <laughs> you know i'm presumably when there is like a crew of people and the huge budgets like that pressure must be huge when you're shooting on actual film you know to get it right can you review it quickly or how, how does it work on film yeah i mean I, well there was definitely a phase where, you know, uh, there was video playback. So actually, I think Jerry Lewis, the comedian and filmmaker developed, as I recall, he was the one to develop play video playback. So there was like a little video camera mounted on the film camera that was recording at the same time. So you were, re you could review right. mostly in terms of performance, obviously not in terms of yeah. the quality of what you were, but so there was definitely that, that way to, to review. And, you know, it's just how things worked. So some people will say that the focus on the film set was so dialed in and everybody understood like the camera's going to roll and it it's a finite amount of film and this is the precious moment in which to capture this moment of the story. Whereas, you know, sometimes with digital, like you'll be rolling and the director will want to say something to the actor and then that becomes a whole conversation. 
but nobody yelled cut. So now you've got 25 yeah. that an editor is going to have to search through where it's like, when do they, when did they start acting again? So that's a, a, a yeah. downside. And you can say like there, there's less of a, that kind of zeroed in full throttle, attentive focus with digital versus when it was film. Sometimes those restrictions add to the sort of creativity of the, the process. Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, it's like your example with you and your wife and your cameras, it's like you have the freedom to just mess around and play around and say, what if, and why not? And take 75 shots of the same thing. Whereas she's going to have to, yeah. is this the picture? Is, is this the, yeah. ending? and then, you know, dare to click the button. <laughs> it's much more exciting that way. You know, And the whole reveal when the picture comes out, like it's, it's really a lot of fun, but yeah. a yes. lot of pressure at the same time. Yeah. Um, what about the cameras themselves? Because presumably they're much more like you, you work a lot of handheld stuff and you can get probably more, I don't know, but you can get more creative with the camera placement. And uh, I'm thinking of like in um, Shrinking when you see Jason Siegel's head in the sink, <laughs> you know, no. and shots like that would have been more challenging sure. with a film camera or something big and chunky from a few years ago. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in those shows that I mentioned already, like Transparent and I Love Dick, when there was a lot of handheld or even on um, Big Little Lies, which was directed by Andrea Arnold. I mean, that was that was a beautiful kind of tying together of Joey Solo and I were completely inspired by Andrea Arnold's filmmaking. Ended up, Joey asked Andrea to come and do some episodes of Transparent, and then she shot or directed most of I Love Dick. And then, so I, I've been very fortunate to have another incredible collaborator experience i've learned so much from andrea and but so on all those projects having a camera that went from you know a larger film camera down to this little kind of digital box did really matter and it it helped the kind of technology disappear a little bit i mean obviously i'm still mm. a, a grown adult in the room with a camera on my shoulder but i could also hug it against my body you know if, if for and i would do that like in more intimate scenes like somehow having it lower and kind of cradled against my bosom, you know, it was like mm -hmm. a way to move freely and, and again, follow the feeling. So yes, and that, in that way, the technology changing and evolving and, and cameras shrinking down helped a lot. The irony is also that because everything has become wireless over the last decade, now you've got this little box with a lens on it and then you need the, the, you know, the motor and the antennae, the, the transmitter that goes back to the thing. So pretty soon this little box is surrounded by a ton of technology. Right. So it's kind of grown up again, but there are ways and, and, you know, we've all these very skilled ACs who understand things about the technology of the things that we use that I do not understand. I trust them completely and rely on them. Like they've figured out ways to kind of strip the little thing down again and still have it functioning in all the ways that the production needs it to, but it's this little kind of, you know, back to the little cradle camera. Do you um, remember any particular shots that you had to get really creative with to get the camera in there, to get you positioned in a way that could make it happen? Is there anything that comes to mind there? There were times on, like there was a, a episode in Transparent at the uh, beginning of season two where one of the characters is getting married and she's having like the ceremony happens, but during the reception, she starts having this panic attack. Like I've made the wrong decision and she wants to figure out if she can still get out of it because the certificate or whatever, you know, the thing, the marriage license hasn't been sent off yet. 
And mm. so she's kind of weaving through this reception hall with 150 guests and, and, you know, her mother's, you know, kind of clawing at her like, Why, when are you going to cut the cake? And, you know, all the traditional stuff. <laughs> and she's having this panic attack and trying to, you know, find somebody to go talk to. And what we were able to do is we knew where that was going to begin and where the character was going to exit the room, but, but the path to that and who might encounter her along the way was left to a bit to chance. And so you know, that was an, a, a time when, even though I, I had camera operators, like, you know, and Joey would ask, would often, you know, say to me, or sometimes Andrew Arnold would say to me, like, will you do the shot? Will you operate this shot? And so in that case, and then that wedding reception crowded room, like we just had this, we called it like a improvised wonders, highly choreographed improvised wonders was the, you know, this acronym that Joey came up with, HICO. Anyway, and I would just kind of follow <laughs> the actress and see what happened. So in that case, it was definitely the benefit of, I mean, talk about like in the old way, like that would have been basically impossible to do because the focus puller wouldn't have been able to fit where I needed to squeeze between people or, you know, through a doorway or whatever. So the technology allowed us to do that. The ability to do long takes with those cameras allowed us having the focus puller remotely on a monitor helped and then you know, and the trust that we had built as a, as a company of players allowed us to pull that kind of stuff. Mm. All right. So when we're getting close to wrapping up here, I've got two more questions. Good. Firstly, what is something you wish other people on the crew knew about what you do that would help you do your job better? Is there anything that springs to mind there that people don't know or people make assumptions about? Yeah. So I will say first that I'm a fairly mellow person. I get excited. I get passionate, but I, I'm not a screamer. I don't yell. I don't get upset. I, I tell my crew, like, if I get quiet, then then probably something's up and you should come and you know, say, hey, Jim, what's going on? But I'm not, you know, barking at anybody ever. But one thing that I wish that more crew knew, because oftentimes it's like, like the lighting crew will set up the scene and then they, they go off and, you know, can look at their phone or get a snack or have a smoke or whatever as a DP. This is almost even, I think maybe it's more, even more than a director, but like from the minute I show up on set to the minute I go home, I am in full throttle because I'm not only like overseeing the lighting and making sure things are happening as we set up, you know, first it's the rehearsal, right? So then I'm, my brain is filling up with like, okay, these are all the shots that we need to get. And you know, some there, there's support. I'm not alone in this. It's like, I can talk to the script supervisor about the order of shooting or the assistant director particularly is like, we're managing the schedule together. Like, where are you going to start? What are we going to start with? We're going to start from this angle or on this character, or we want to start with her instead of him. But my point is like from minute one until wrap, it's, it's just this nonstop symphony of ideas and pressures. And like, my brain is on fire in, in, in a beautiful way. Like, I love that part. Yeah. It's nonstop. And so there are some times when and nobody's ever like trying to be a pain in the butt or, you know, distracting me exactly. But it's just like, sometimes I don't know that other crew know like how much energy I am expending in the service of this days of the day of filming. If that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. And, and so, you know, sometimes like I'll try and think of a concrete example, but it's basically like let's say we really wanted this piece of equipment for two days from now. And this person keeps wanting to come and talk to me about it. And I get, I want to be planning ahead with that person, but it's also like, 
this is a major scene. Like this is an emotional scene. I have to be totally present right here. I'm glad you're thinking about it. I cannot have this conversation with you about it like right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I suppose that that's what that's one thing I would want. That's great. I, I really am envisioning this as something that everyone on a crew, whatever their position would get something out of learning something from another mm -hmm. area of this of this world and that's what i really hope hope to happen so yeah that's fascinating and finally um i'd like to talk about sort of the tech advances that are sort of racing up now mm -hmm. um things like obviously ai is the buzzword right now but particularly in in your world these huge uh, what do they call them volume displays like on the mandalorian when they have those big right. screens and things like that yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on that and virtual reality, et cetera? What are your thoughts on these new developments? Are you excited? Does it make you nervous? What are you thinking about these things? I've only had a little sampler taste of that world thus far. And, and most of that has come in the form of doing, instead of driving in a, you know, actors in a car that we're towing and, you know, out on the streets of LA or New York or whatever, you know, we're shooting with these projection screens, like it's not quite as you know, high tech as the volume, but they're getting there. I mean, they use the same principles and the same, some of the same tools to, to give you that. But like mm. you surround the car with these huge panels that are from the right perspective of a car moving through space. And the benefit of it is that it's a lot more time efficient to, to film as opposed to driving in, in real life. I think you could almost guess based on every, most of the things I've said during our conversation here that I prefer the real life version, you know, yeah. there's something about like driving at night, just the way that lights will move past the car and, and, and fall across an actor's face that you can't plan. If you have the resources and the time, there are people who do that brilliantly when they're controlling the lighting, even if the car is not really driving or even if it's you know, driving on a street, but they've created all the, the lighting. Um, but again, those kind of happy accidents and, I still, as a viewer, I feel like I can feel the difference. Mm. Like I can witness something that's done with VFX, whether it's a volume or just incredible, you know, VFX characters or monsters or whatever. I can marvel at them and actually really be yeah. stunned by the ingenuity. I can think of like Pixar movies that blow me away. They're the most, you know, they're so beautiful. But as far as where I would lean, I'm still the guy who wants to be in a real house or in a real neighborhood where the colors and the textures and the things that you wouldn't necessarily think of exist already and can bring something to life in a beautiful way, as opposed to something that is manufactured. Yeah. I'm always happy to be in a real place with a camera. Yeah. Well, perfect way to end it, I think. So um, right. thank you so much <laughs> for joining me today. That was, that was fascinating. Yeah, that was great. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the Soundstage Insider podcast. Many thanks, of course, to our guest, Jim Froner. You can connect with us on social media. We're Soundstage In on Twitter and Soundstage Insider on Instagram. So that's it for today. I hope you have a great week and I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.